Well, good evening. It's the uh, beginning of camp, right? It's the beginning of camp. I don't know what it means to be virtual. Um, we've been virtual for way too long. I've decided one thing about virtual. I don't want to live a virtual life. And I don't want to hang around with virtual people. I know this, I don't want a virtual wife. Um, I want the real thing, you know, I, I really do. And so I'm grateful that in the midst of difficult and challenging days, you all had the courage to have camp in person. And I'm glad that you chose to do that. I know that there are risks, but you know, life is full of risks. We cannot be completely risk averse and live life. That's no life to live. So I'm, with respect to everyone and how they are handling these pandemic things, and I want you to know that these have been the strangest days I have ever known as a pastor. Try to be a pastor with three to 400 people who have three to 400 opinions about a pandemic. You will lose your mind. And so I just hope and pray that as we continue to come out of this, we will see freedom emerge, and we will see some of the wonderful joys that we've known in the past available and accessible to us again. I trust that will be the case. Thanks for having me. About two years ago, I filled in for someone who couldn't be here on a Friday night. That's kind of the story of my life. Um, when they're scraping the bottom of the barrel, um, and they've scraped it all they can, they think, oh, I think there's some guy by the name of Jonathan, and so that's how I get my calls. But anyway, that was two years ago, and it was a privilege to be here. And then we had the virtual thing last year, but uh, it's a privilege to be back in person. It's a joy to be here in person. You know, I've been praying about the life of the church. I want you to know as a pastor, I don't know if I really fit the bill as far as an evangelist is concerned, um, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor at heart, and being in people's lives and trying to help them on to God and trying to tell them at any given moment what it is in a distilled, kind of condensed way, what it is we ought to have as our focus and who we ought to have as our focus, that's really where I live my life. So I come out of that context tonight to share with you at the beginning of camp that I really do believe there is a focus for us that is completely appropriate and applicable for this camp. I want to look with you at Mark's account of the transfiguration of Jesus. You know, that's an event of the incarnation that we often just look at briefly or kind of skirt over it quickly. But it's one of the most significant events of Jesus' incarnational ministry. And the testimony of the Father at that great moment is critical for us to grasp. It's important for us as Christians to understand what the Father is telling us in that moment, not only what Jesus is doing and the sights of Jesus in an un um, restrained way and in an undiminished way in that glimpse of him in his radiance beyond the sight beyond that marvel what the father says about Jesus is critical for us 
And I trust that that will be the launch pad for us this, this time of the year at Camp Syker. So we're looking at chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel. And even though the first verse really is a bridge verse, we'll read that as well. Uh, but I want us to read through verse 8 of, John, or of Mark chapter 9. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I think that verse is perhaps one of the, one of the greatest understatements. It just kind of says, in a casual way, Elijah showed up, and Moses with him. Now, if you know your Bibles, they were dead a long time before that. That's kind of significant, isn't it? So we just read that kind of casually, and then you kind of looked at it, and you didn't even nod. Uh, that's a remarkable, remarkable reality. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. That's a nice word for tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. May God bless his word to our hearts. I had an opportunity, I'll call it an opportunity, but really in many respects, um, it was one of the most trying experiences of my life. But at a brief stint of time, while I was pastoring in Sturgis, Michigan, I was also the principal of a Christian school. I would never advise that, but I was the principal of a Christian school. One of my responsibilities that year was to take the senior high students to Arizona to a big uh, Christian school gathering, and one of the things that we were going to do was take these students who had uh, never gotten out of Sturgis, Michigan, to the Grand Canyon. Now, it was my first experience at the Grand Canyon as well. I'd seen pictures of it, documentaries of it, all kinds of accounts that others who had gone there gave to me, but none of that prepared me for actually seeing the Grand Canyon. How many of you have ever seen the Grand Canyon in person? Okay. When we pulled up to the Grand Canyon, of course, we had those 15 passenger vans that um, after several hours with senior students, you know, you wish you were not in that van. Um, but 
we were in those vans, and we got out, and all around us were tourist bus, buses, and they were from everywhere. And the crowd was pretty thick, and I soon realized we had individuals from all different nations all around us. And we were all kind of making one movement, kind of moving as a group, to the edge of the canyon. And I'll never forget this. When we got there, I wondered what we would say, and I wondered, would the Japanese tourists know what we were saying? Would the German tourists know what we were saying? Would we, hear, would we understand what they were saying? Well, we did. Every one of us perfectly understood everyone, even though we didn't speak their language, because this is what happened. We got to the edge, and everyone just went, ah. Oh. A universal language emerged because there simply weren't words to try to accurately depict what we were seeing. What we've just read about the transfiguration of Jesus is one of those you-had-to-be-there kind of moments. You can't put it into words. So one of the things that I think we would note from the outset is, is this is, even though it is briefly described in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke with great similarity, it is still indescribable as far as its content and context. There aren't words that we could come up with that would accurately put into our hearts and into our minds and give us a visual image of what Jesus must have looked like when the human kind of flesh was pulled away and when he was seen as he really is. It was a divine moment. It was a God moment so indescribable that here Mark records, having been helped even by Peter, he was so white, bright. The light was so penetrating, so pervasive, so powerful, that there isn't any way that anybody with the best laundry soap available could ever get anything that white, bright. Now, isn't that an interesting way to put it? I'm not sure why Mark and the others were thinking about laundry. I really don't. I don't know why they were thinking about that. But maybe that was an issue of the day of how in the world do you keep white clothes white? Maybe that was somewhere embedded in their mind. I'm not sure. But the description is interesting. It's better than any launderer could ever produce to make something that white. Why was that event, why was that moment in so many ways so indescribable? And why is it that it, it almost appears that the factors of that moment are presented in a casual way? I think one of the reasons that it's presented as it is is because you just can't adequately describe what happened, what they saw, what they experienced without being there. Isn't that very much like our own personal faith? There are factors about our faith and trust in Jesus, what He does in our own lives that is both universal and unique that as hard as we try, there are times we really can't ad adequately describe what Jesus means to us and what He's done in our lives. But we can rejoice in it 
and we can celebrate in it nonetheless. Beyond what Jesus looked like, beyond the indescribable white light radiance of Jesus and those moments where they got a, a brief glimpse of what God looks like, beyond that, Elijah and Moses show up and they talk with Jesus. Luke records that they talked about his departure. The original language says they, they talked about his demise, his soon coming death. They had a conference meeting right there on the Mount of Transfiguration. How significant is that? How indescribable is that moment? You and I have just read a passage that indicates there was a moment in time when there was a handing over, as it were, all of the law and all of the prophets to the one who alone fulfilled them all, Jesus the Christ. Elijah is there representing, obviously, that prophetic role that God ordained and God indeed um, ignited in the hearts of his servants, not only telling about the future, but always telling about God. The prophetic voice was not just foretelling, but forthtelling. He was a preacher of God's Word. And when he is speaking with Jesus, they are affirming, they are confirming Jesus is God's holy sent one. He is the Word in its final form. He is the one to whom we need to give all deference and reverence, and we need to turn to Him and listen to Him. It's a marvelous picture. It is so powerful that the prophetic voice is yielding completely, as it were handing off the baton to God's last word. Oh, how we need to hear that and see that. But we also have Moses there. Moses, yes, a prophetic role, but also Moses, the law role. Law, different than how we look at law, Law in the Old Testament mindset takes in all of the ways that God speaks, God instructs, He teaches, He conveys truth, He speaks what is essential, and shares His known will or His knowable will. So when you, work, when you look at the work, word law in the Old Testament in particular, Understand that it doesn't have to do with speed limits for chariots or whatever. It has to do with God's will being made known by God because He's a God who speaks. He's a God who communicates. He's a God who gets His truth to our hearts. And I want us to take just a moment and look at the, this wonderful corroboration that we find in Hebrews chapter 1, first couple of verses. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things 
by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Wow. After God used the prophets and after God used the law and after he used men, he spoke finally and fully through his Son, Jesus the Christ. He is a radiant, full representation of who God is. No wonder when Jesus was often accosted by those who questioned who he was, he made these kinds of statements. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am his full representation here in the flesh. And the Mount of Transfiguration is indeed an evidence of just that. What an indescribable moment. Two individuals who have entered into glory are there in front of Peter, James, and John, and they're taking it all in. All we know at this point from the text is that James and John, as well as Peter, were terrified. They were terrified. It would get your attention, wouldn't it? If you saw Elijah and Moses, and if you saw Jesus in his unrestrained glory, it would get your attention. It would get a hold of you. Peter did something, though, different than James and John. Evidently, James and John just kept quiet. But impetuous Peter did something quite different. He shared an independent motive. We have an indescribable moment. And having nothing to say, as other references remind us, I just find this hilarious. It's a lot like us. Having nothing to say... He spoke. I just want to say something to us. That is inadvisable. Don't do that. Having nothing to say, don't just speak up. I was traveling one time with a dear friend of our family's, one who was a very prolific writer in the 20th century. His name was Richard S. Taylor. And I had just had him in my church for a revival meeting. He was a dear, gracious soul, but the fact that he was so keen and had such a wonderful mind and heart, I was intimidated by him. And so we were having a conversation, and, and I was trying to figure out in my 20s, how do you talk to someone who is as sharp as he is? Well, I learned some things while taking him to the airport. Um, better just to keep your mouth shut at times. So I made this statement. I thought this would be interesting conversation, and I thought it might even show him that I had a pretty decent mind, too. So I brought up a scripture that I had recently been working on, and I shared with him my thoughts about this scripture. And I said, you know, Dr. Taylor, I said, I have looked at all different commentaries. I've looked at any resource I can find about this verse, and I'm the only one that I can find thinking this thought. Are you traveling with me so far? And so I shared my thought with him, and he was very, very quiet for a painful period of time as we were driving down I-69 toward Indianapolis to take him to the airport. And so I finally said, well, Dr. Taylor, what do you think? 
He said, well, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And at that point, I realized there are times you just shouldn't speak. This is one of those moments in Peter's life. Don't forget that in chapter 8, where we will probably visit this week, in Mark chapter 8, Peter had taken it upon himself to rebuke Jesus. When Jesus started talking about his suffering and his death. And Peter rebuked Jesus. I urge you with all seriousness, don't rebuke Jesus. Don't take Jesus to task. Don't tell Jesus what to do. And don't tell Jesus he doesn't know what he's talking about when he speaks to you. May I suggest that? I highly recommend that we not rebuke Jesus. For what did Jesus do? He rebuked Peter. So on the heels of that, Peter is still feeling as if in these moments that are highly charged and God's on the scene and Jesus is being magnified, Peter needs to say something. No, you don't. There are times you should just be still. So while Peter is saying, I have an idea, Jesus, let's pitch three tents, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for you, let's stay here. What he was suggesting was, let's stay right here out of the fray, out of the valley, away from the people that hate us, away from those who are gathering evidence against you, away from the suffering, ultimately away from the cross. Let's stay here, Jesus. Now, you know, God is not a brute. He's not rude. But when necessary, he reserves the right to interrupt us. Have you ever been interrupted by God, by the Holy Spirit? You've had an idea or you've started to pop off about something. Have you ever been interrupted by the Holy Spirit? Good. I see some heads nodding. I thank God for that because had you never been interrupted by the Holy Spirit, you're not spiritually alive. So what did God do? Right in the middle of Peter's great idea, God overshadowed him and God spoke. He interrupted Peter. And what God said, what the Father said at that moment, I pray will be our heart's cry for this camp. While Peter was saying, I think we ought to stay here, the Father overshadowed him. And the voice that came out of the cloud said these words, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. John's gospel begins in an interesting way by declaring that Jesus is the Logos, 
Jesus is the Word. Hebrews that we read indicated He's the last Word. He's the final Word. So if Jesus is the final Word on all matters, spiritual and moral, if Jesus is indeed the Word, as John declares, if God has seen fit in a last fulfilling way to speak finally and fully through Jesus His Son, then it is a reasonable mandate from the Father that we listen to Jesus. I shared with you that I'm a pastor. I have been for years. I live my life in pastoral ministry. I can't tell you how many calls I get a week or I texts that I get during the day. You know, I'm thankful for cell phones, then I'm not thankful for cell phones. There are times I'm glad for them. There are times I'm not glad for them. Social media, for example. I won't get off on that, but not having a filter between the few working synapses of our brain and our mouths or our fingers is not good. I mean, we are pretty much just keeping a refrigerator bulb going in the first place. So for us to constantly share our thoughts is not necessarily beneficial to society. And I would also just like to say to you, dear friends, I love you dearly, you don't have that many friends. Okay? You just don't. You might have an inflated ego. Look how many friends I have. You don't have. They won't bail you out. They won't answer your call if you are really in need. They're not your friends. I really believe that's been one of the greatest plagues on our minds. I wonder what it's going to eventuate in how it affects who we are down the road. It's had a profound impact on us already. Not only do we see in this text an indescribable moment and witness it and an independent motive, why don't we just stay here, Jesus, and avoid all of the difficulty, the pain, and the suffering, and we can kind of be large and in charge here. But then there's the wonderful, indisputable mandate that comes from the voice of the Father himself. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. I'm amazed when the phone calls come in and I receive the texts and they're asking me, Pastor, should I do this? Should I do that? What about this? What about that matter? What about this person? What about that person? Should I do this, pursue this, not pursue this? I want you to know that it really, sincerely, is not flattering to me that they call me first. I don't take comfort in that at all. In fact, at times I feel as if I have failed somehow to not get into their hearts and into their minds that their first resort, their exclusive resort in many respects, is to mine out of God's Word what Jesus says and listen to Him. 
I look at where our culture has gone rapidly. I look at the impact that it has had on the church. And I want to say to us, has Jesus stopped speaking? Or have we merely ceased listening? The mandate from the Father is clear. It is as clear as it could be. If you want to know the truth, if you want to know the way, if you want to have life, listen to Him. Listen to Him. The world doesn't write God's salvation story, friends. The world doesn't have the right to change the Word. Culture doesn't have the right to tell God that somehow He has changed His views. Listen to Jesus. I found something, though, as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus. Good. Real good. Good comes to those who listen to Jesus. Even if Jesus is a corrective and convicting presence, even if his words are hard at first, they are always for our good if we will heed them. If we'll listen to Jesus, Jesus will not mistreat us. Jesus will not treat us unkindly. He will not go back on His Word, but if we cling to Him and listen to what He has to say, He will lead us into the best that God has to offer for our sin-sick conditions in this life and in the life to come. So for camp, why are we here? What do we do? How should we approach these gatherings? What should our hearts be like, and how should we tune them? I pray that starting from the outset, our hearts will be tuned on the frequency to pick up clearly what Jesus says. And I pray that in wherever you are in your own spiritual life, during these days that are often used greatly by God, for our own spiritual well-being, we will be ready to listen to Jesus. But listen in the way that Scripture means. Listen doesn't mean just pick up the sound. It means receive it and prayerfully, by the help of the Holy Spirit, apply it. Listen with application and listen with obedience. My prayer for us then tonight would be this. If we're just where we are or if we would want to move even to a place like this of prayer, would we be willing to put ourselves out there from the beginning and just go on record with God and make a covenant with Him that through these days together, not knowing what's going to be said, not knowing where we're going to look at the Scriptures, we're ready to listen to Jesus. We're ready to listen to Him. I trust that you will make that 
covenant, that agreement with God. You don't have to make it with me, but make it with God. I am ready to listen to Him. For the Father says, He's my beloved. He's my son. Listen to Him. I like what the next verse says. When the smoke cleared and when the drama was over, Jesus likely returned to what they were accustomed to seeing. They saw Jesus exclusively, singularly. They saw Him alone. I believe that was the beginning of how they would proceed thereafter. They saw Jesus alone. I pray that we will as well. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? Our Father in heaven, you know our hearts better than we know our hearts. Nothing's hidden from you. You know our needs, and you're not some mean tyrant. You're not after us to harm us or to hurt us, but you're after us all right. You're pursuing us without question. And during these days, those of us who have gathered here, you're after us, but you are after us for our good, and you are after us for your glory. And I pray that from the very beginning of our worship together, we will say yes in our hearts and without reserve, with, without holding back, without hiding anything, and without telling you that some things are off limits, I pray that we will commit to the venture, that we will commit to the journey of these days and say an all-effective yes, I will listen to Jesus. I will listen to Him. Help us affirm that, we pray tonight. Again, for your glory and for our good, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wesley. Open my eyes, Lord. We want to Open my
Our Heavenly Father, on this first night of Camp Psyker 2021, we're so thankful to know that we don't have to wait. Lord, that we can be responsive right now, that the song we just sang can truly be the prayer of our hearts. That you would open our ears, that we would hear you, Lord. That you would open our mouths. We would speak, Lord, and that we would know the right time to simply be silent. Lord, above all, that we would know the right time to respond is when we sense the Holy Spirit is moving in our hearts. Lord, if there are any among us tonight who sense your Holy Spirit is speaking to them, Lord, encourage their hearts. Don't let them wait to take this moment, this opportune time to come and be responsive to the voice of the Spirit. Lord, may that be the prayer and the posture of our hearts every day and every night, not just while we're here, but throughout our earthly lives. Lord, as we go from this time of worship tonight, may you continue to speak to our hearts, to speak to our minds, to draw us deeper and deeper into that wonderful, beautiful, intimate relationship for which you have made every one of us. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. <laughs>